Our text begins this morning, finally, brothers, pray for us. The Apostle Paul asks for prayer. This brilliant man, this apostle of Jesus, this writer of so much of the New Testament, this man asks for prayer. The Apostle Paul needs the prayer of God's people. What does he need their prayers for? He says in verse 2 that they should pray that he might be delivered from wicked and evil men. That's the sort of prayer we might expect. Help me, there are dangerous folks out there, protect me. It's the sort of prayer we often pray for ourselves and for one another. But this request in verse 2 follows Paul's request in verse 1. Indeed, I think his request in verse 2 is a specific aspect of his request in verse 1, as we shall see. Verse 1, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Or literally, pray for us in order that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified. So the Apostle Paul says, your prayers, Thessalonians, are vital in bringing about the victory of the word of God. Your prayers are effective in accomplishing God's purposes. Your prayers are a means of filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. Do you believe that? If so, do you act consistently with that belief? Many of us become discouraged with prayer. We may pray diligently, fervently for something, and then it doesn't happen. And we think, prayer doesn't work. Why keep on doing it? A few years ago, a friend was making an important life decision, and I decided before God, I was not going to give advice unless asked, and he didn't ask me. I decided I wasn't even going to hint at the decision I favored. I was just going to pray. But I was going to pray every day, every day. And his decision was a few months off. So this continued for weeks and weeks. And I thought that what I wanted to happen, I honestly thought that would be most for the glory of God. It would be most for the good of this friend. It would be most for the good of this church. And then when the friend told me his decision, and it wasn't the decision that I prayed for, I felt like God had punched me in the gut. It hurt. And I remember praying that day, oh, Father, I so long for this. And I really thought this would be for your glory. This hurts so much, oh, Father. And so I was faced with the temptation to feel self-pity, to question God's wisdom and love, and faced with the temptation to quit 
praying. Have you felt that temptation? Have you given in to that temptation? In these few verses from 2 Thessalonians, the apostle helps us address these issues. Through these and other scriptures, we come to understand the nature of prayer, the link between prayer and the triumph of God's word and our deep need for him that's satisfied in prayer. So I pray that God's word would run and be glorified among us this morning and that we would continue diligently in that prayer every day. So our outline this morning is simple, just two headings. The victory of the word from the second part of verse 1 and then verses 2 to 4. And then the second heading, prayer and the word, the first part of verse 1 and verse 5. So we'll come back to prayer under that second heading, but first, the victory of the word. The word of the Lord will run and be glorified. Now remember, the Apostle Paul very frequently compares living the Christian life to our running a race. And that's one of my favorite images in Scripture as a a former runner and racer. For example, near the close of Paul's final letter, he writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. In this passage, however, the runner is not Paul, but the runner is the Word. God's Word is running a race. Who does God's Word compete against? Well, God's Word competes against all other supposed revelations. It competes against all other worldviews. It competes against all other Philosophies. So imagine these philosophies and worldviews and other religions running a race, and God's word is right there in the middle of it, right? And sometimes in the course of history, it's looked like one of these other competitors is way, way, way ahead of God's word, right? Indeed. If we look at these last 2,000 years since the resurrection, there are many, many times when God's word has looked like it is losing dramatically. Whether that's in Old Testament times, losing to Baal worship, or in the early years of the church, losing to Gnosticism, or later, losing to Islam, or since the Enlightenment, losing to materialism or scientism or secular humanism or some form of nationalism. But like a runner coming from behind to win an Olympic gold medal, the Word of God will win that race amongst philosophies. The word of God will be glorified. It will be shown to be true, will be shown to be righteous, will be shown to be genuinely from God. As we read in our call to worship from Isaiah 45, 
From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee will bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then ten chapters later, in the prophet Isaiah's book, he compares God's word to rain, right? That falls and thus brings forth crops and food. That word, says Isaiah, shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, God's word will run and be victorious over all other alternatives. Nothing will stand against it. God's word will win that race and will win that race clearly and dramatically. For as Paul writes at the beginning of verse 3 in our text, the Lord is faithful. How many people have promised you something and then failed to fulfill it? That can be trivial things, right? Amazon says the package is going to arrive on Friday, but it doesn't come on Friday, and then it doesn't come till Monday, and you were planning to use it over the weekend. That's just trivial, of course. But then there are violations of marriage vows, violations of implicit arrangements between parents and children, Promises that are unfulfilled. People make promises again and again. And so often they fail to fulfill them. But unlike us, the Lord is faithful. What he promises, he does. What he says comes to pass. He may surprise us in how he fulfills those promises... Right? Not many were expecting the Messiah to be born into poverty, to be raised in Galilee, to be crucified, dead, and buried. That was a surprise. But the Lord is always faithful. His promises come about. His word triumphs. The word of the Lord will run and be glorified. In verse 2, Paul then expresses his desire that the word be glorified in his own ministry. Look at the verse. At first glance, as I mentioned in the introduction, this looks like a request for Paul's personal safety, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. But this is not a request for safety for safety's sake. It's not a request for safety in and of itself. Remember, Paul is the same man who later will write, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the same man who later writes, the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So why does he ask for deliverance in verse 2 of today's text? He requests deliverance not solely for safety, but so that, being safe, he might continue to proclaim the word of God. 
He asks for safety so that the word will run and be glorified elsewhere as it did amongst the Thessalonians. That's his great desire, to fulfill the ministry that God has given him. And then, when he has fulfilled that ministry, when he has fought the good fight and finished the race, at exactly the right time to be taken to be with Jesus forever. That's his desire. He is living in light of Jesus' promises, in light of Jesus' return, as indeed the entirety of First and Second Thessalonians commend us to do. Well, verse 2 ends by saying that Paul needs to be delivered because not all have faith. Now, since that would be so obviously true of folks outside the church, obviously people outside the church don't have faith, Paul here must be referring to those inside the church who don't have faith, those who appear to be believers but are not. He needs to be protected from them. Indeed, the word translated wicked in verse 2 literally means out of place. That's a particularly appropriate word, isn't it? To use when referring to those in the church who masquerade as believers in Christ. They are out of place. They don't belong there. Paul needs deliverance from such false believers if the word is to run and be glorified in his ministry. So in verse 1, the apostle has made the great proclamation about the triumph of the word. The word will run and be glorified. In verse 2, he has asked that the word triumph through his personal ministry. And then, from the second half of verse 3 through verse 4, he states his confidence that the word will triumph in the Thessalonian church. Let me read those verses. Picking up in the middle of verse 3. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. As Peter tells us, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But God's word will overcome Satan and all of his designs. God will guard and protect his elect from ever falling away, even if there are pseudo-believers who are attacking them. God will see to it that his word, spoken by his apostle, will be fulfilled and obeyed in the Thessalonian church. And God will see to it that his word, spoken by his teachers and pastors, will be fulfilled and obeyed in this church. Thus, God's word triumphs over all. In Paul's ministry, in the church in Thessalonica, throughout the world. The word of the Lord will run and be glorified, that is certain. But it will not happen apart from prayer. 
That brings us to our second heading, prayer and the word. Let me use another illustration here before we look at the text again. You might say, Paul's statement doesn't make much sense. Pray for us that the word would run and be glorified. If the word is going to run and be glorified, why do I keep praying for it? It's going to happen, so why keep praying for it? Well, use that image again. The word is running against all these other philosophies. It looks like it's way behind, and it then zooms to the front and wins the race. When do you stop praying for that? In 1978, I was running in the 10,000 meters at the Davidson Relays. This was the fourth Davidson Relays I had run the 10,000 meters at. My first 10,000 meter race as a freshman at Davidson was a disaster. I had never raced longer than about three and a half miles. And though I was well able to do it, I didn't have the mental fortitude to continue and ended up dropping out at, I don't know, four and a half miles or something like that. And subsequently, sophomore and junior years, I had done better, but I had never come close to winning that race. Well, that Saturday was the first time Beth's parents and my parents met each other. Beth's parents were up. They were in the stands. My parents were in the stands. For a, for a Davidson track meet, there were unusually large number of people in the stands that day. It was a hot day, and I had to be careful not to lose my energy, go too hard early, and wither in the heat. But we were running along pretty quickly, and eventually two of us broke away from all the others. And there was a guy from Wake Forest who was right with me, who was primarily a miler, and I was primarily a 5,000-meter, 10,000-meter runner. So a lot of people thought that this other guy was going to have a stronger kick at the end than myself. But I felt very much in control. I didn't want to start my kick too early, again, thinking that I might die in the heat. So I waited and waited and waited and waited. And there were people cheering all along, of course, and people, telling, including my coach, telling me, Cody, don't wait to the end. Don't wait to the end. Well, I was going to wait to the end. And we got to the steeplechase pit, about 150 meters from home, and I said, okay, now. And I accelerated much, immediately gained three or four yards on this guy. At this point, it's obvious I'm going to win the race, that I had much more left than him. What did the people in the stands do? They cheered even louder, right? They had been cheering for me, encouraging me, or giving me advice, all before, but at this point, they cheer all the more, even though it's obvious I'm going to win the race. Just so with us and the Word of God. Just so. Yes, it's obvious God's Word is going to triumph and win that race. So let's cheer all the more. Let's pray for it all the more. Yes, God uses our prayers to accomplish that, and our prayers 
or our response to the certainty that God is, God's word is going to triumph. Okay, now back to the text. Prayer and the word. God, the Apostle Paul could have started chapter 3 by writing this. The word of the Lord will run and be glorified as happened among you. It's a true statement, as we've seen. That's the first major point. Other scriptures, like those we read from Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 55, say something similar. God promises it's going to happen. But as we saw in the introduction, Paul instead says, pray for us in order that the word of the Lord will run and be glorified. God has guaranteed the outcome, and God has determined it will not happen apart from prayer, apart from your prayer, apart from my prayer. Why is this so? Go back to the creation story. God created us in his image. He created us to shine with his light, to display his character, to glorify him. Or to use a different image, an image that John Piper developed when preaching on this passage in 1985. God made us to be mirrors. Mirrors do not create light. What do mirrors do? They reflect light. A mirror that rotates away from the light and tries to create its own little spark is not fulfilling its purpose. With its back to the light, it's only casting a shadow. It's obscuring the light. The mirror must turn to the light so as to reflect the light. Only in that way does the mirror fulfill its purpose. Just so for us. In prayer, we look to God, the light. We turn to God, and then his light reflects off of us. His truth, his word, his image reflects off of us to those around us. Prayer is the way we act out being God's mirror. We turn to God in prayer. His light shines on us. And his image reflects out of us. Do you see that? Now, some of you may be thinking, Cody, I would have put it differently. Even if I used that same image of the mirror. In prayer... We pray for certain ways that the light will be reflected off of us to others. So I pray for myself to resist temptation. I pray for myself to rejoice in God. And I pray for others that they will speak the word powerfully. I pray for others that they will come to faith. So you might be saying, that's the way I think of prayer. Not as a turning to God, but an asking of God 
for these different things. What do you think of that statement? I think I'd answer in this way. By all means, we are to ask many things of God in prayer. But realize, the fundamental nature of prayer is our turning to face God, our turning away from ourselves and turning to face God. So we're turning away from our resources, our strengths, our abilities, and looking to him as our hope, our power, our love, our joy. And yes, as we turn to him, we ask that his word would go forth with power. We ask to resist temptation. We ask for all these different things. But the fundamental nature of prayer is a turning to God away from myself. So last, 10 days ago, when we were in Vermont, my little three-year-old granddaughter, Lily, asked me something. She was alone in the house and she was playing with train tracks. And she had made a train track and she had it kind of as a U, but she wasn't able to connect the parts. She needed some disassembly of the tracks in order to put it together. And so she said, Papa, you need to help me make a train track. Well, that's about as close to a request as Lily makes. There was a particular request there. Come help me make this train track. But there was a lot behind that request, right? A lot more. She wanted a lot more than help in completing the circle of the train tracks. She was exhausted after we had taken dozens and dozens and dozens of family pictures She had had it. That was enough. And she wanted me to sit with her, to listen to her, to relate to her. That was much more important than the completed train track. But she couldn't articulate all that. She probably didn't even know it consciously. But that's what she wanted. And so I completed the train track We played together. She made clear to me it was not my job to move the trains around the track. That was her responsibility. But I was to narrate what was going on, right? And she had a great... We we must have sat there for 45 minutes or an hour doing that. She turned to me and she asked for me. That's what we do in prayer. Yes, there are specific requests, but underlying all those requests are the desire for God. What does this have to do with the word? The word is God's light of revelation about himself. So when we turn to God in prayer, we turn to him via his word. We don't want to turn to a false god. We don't want to turn to a god of our culture. We don't want to turn to a god of our ethnicity. We want to turn to the one true God. And we do that 
via his word. So the word prompts our prayer as it shows us who God is. And then the triumph of the word is the key object of our prayer. Our primary request is the triumph of God's word, whether in our personal lives, in our family, in our church, amongst the nations. As our text says, pray for us in order that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified. So make this the object of your most fervent prayer. By all means, as the apostle says in Philippians, don't worry about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Pray for anything and everything that concerns you. Yes. Ask for the equivalent of having your heavenly father build a train track with you. But above all else, pray in order that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified in your life as you look to him, as you relate to him. In this church, in the lives of your friends and relatives, amongst the Loam people, amongst the peoples of Bolivia, amongst the peoples of India, pray and know that God will bring it about. His word will run and be glorified. And and your prayer will be effective in accomplishing this greatest of all tasks. When this is your most fervent prayer, when you turn to God, seeking his face, delighting in his person through his word, and then pray for that word to triumph among people group after people group, You need never be discouraged. God will bring it about. He promises. He is faithful. He is a God of his word. In verse 5, the apostle then puts this into practice, praying for the Thessalonians, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now remember the word heart Old Testament and New Testament, includes all that you are on the inside. So so Paul asks, may God make your aim, your desire, your focus be on the love of God and the steadfastness or perseverance of Jesus. He thus thus is asking that they turn to face God in prayer and that they will be the mirrors that God intends. In this way, they will shine with his image, showing forth his word, glorifying God with their lives, as they love with God's love, as they endure with Jesus' endurance, as they bask in God's love, and as they contemplate Jesus' perseverance. When they, beholding his glory, are transformed from one degree of glory to another, they fulfill their purpose in this world. So pray like that. Pray like that. The word triumphs through our prayers. Well, look again at the first words in this chapter. Finally, brothers, pray for us. As we said, the apostle 
Paul needs the prayers of the Thessalonians. I need your prayers. You need the prayers of others. God has, has determined that his word will run and be glorified, and he has determined that he will bring that about through prayer, through your prayers. God's word will triumph over all philosophies, over all worldviews, through your prayers. So turn the mirror of your life to the light of God and pray to that end. Pray that in your life, God's word would run and be glorified. Pray that in the lives of your friends and families, God's word would run and be glorified. Pray that in this next phase of Scotty and Lisa's life, God's word would run and be glorified. Pray that in this church and in the next pastor who comes, God's word would run and be glorified. Pray that among specific unreached people groups, God's word would run and be glorified. And thereby, love God and love these people that God has put on your heart. Thereby, display the steadfastness and perseverance of Jesus as day after day you continue in such prayers. Friends, God calls you to himself. He says, as we read, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He reminds us he is God and there is no other. So he calls you to face him, to lean on him, to delight in him, to come to him repentant, humble, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness through the grace that comes via Jesus. So come to him. And then, if you are in Christ, know that he has called you to himself in part so that you will continue to reflect his light to the world around you, so that you will continue to turn to him in prayer, so that his word will triumph through your prayers. So pray, pray for God's word to triumph, and know he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or imagine. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a chance to pray aloud in a minute, if you like. Oh, Father God, thank you for this revelation from your word. How we pray that your word would run and be glorified in our lives, in this church, amongst the nations. So hear our prayers, O oh Father, hear our prayers as we bring them before you. Feel free to pray aloud if you would like.